This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today I am continuing my conversation about the cult Nexium. If you haven't listened to part one, it came out last week, and in part one I covered the definition of high-demand, high-control groups and why that makes Nexium a cult. Uh, talked about some other things in which uh, there are examples of behavior in Nexium that map onto the patterns of cults. Um, and talked a little bit about the ways in which people get recruited to cults, but they do not join them. They get actively recruited. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about neuro-linguistic programming, which is the foundation of Nexium, and then spend some time talking about the DOS program, which was part of Nexium and ultimately, I think, led to its downfall. As with part one, just kind of brief content warning that there is uh, descriptions of coercive sexual situations um, and... This is the episode where I'm going to talk about the branding. So again, if those are topics that are sensitive for you, just know that they're they're going to be in this episode. So I'm going to start with neurolinguistic programming or NLP, which is the foundation of Nexium and is really the way in which uh, Nancy Salzman played a role in uh, Nexium. So last episode, I talked mostly about Keith Raniere, who really was like the the founder and head of Nexium, but his right hand woman. His prefect, Nancy Salzman, uh, was a retired, well, she wasn't retired at the time. She was a psychiatric nurse who uh, ended up getting trained in NLP and uh, was and really worked with uh, Keith to bring NLP into Nexium and to help him develop the module. So she played a very large role in Nexium and her daughter got really involved in Nexium as well. The whole family just just really got wrapped up. If you're more interested in Nancy's story, the season two of The Vow follows her. I think she is a very complicated figure who seems to have had a pretty rough history of her own mental health struggles that I think Keith was able to spot and manipulate. She also does hold a lot of responsibility for backing Keith up with her mental health knowledge. Um, and her kind of like uh, previous career. So she she's complicated in that, you know, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot more empathy for Nancy than I do for Keith. Um, but at the same time, like she, she did play a very big role in setting up the curriculum that was then used to 
kind of bash against um, the other members of Nexium. But so one of Nancy's contributions was bringing in NLP, which if you've ever encountered Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, he also uses NLP. It's very big in the self-help world and the kind of like organizational business boss boy world. <laughs> I, oh, I know we have boss babes, but I think we should talk about boss boys. I'm I'm terming that now. Copyright, Grace Fowler, PhD, boss boys. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of like, it's very much like a business bro um, kind of thing. Tony, Tony Robbins uses it. So what is it? It was created in the 1970s by two men named Richard Bandler and John Grinder. And a, the original purpose of NLP was to basically put a structure to the quote unquote magic of therapy to make it easy to teach anyone how to do it. So they wanted to be able to kind of like have this manual. You could read the manual and then know how to give therapy, psychotherapy, without having to go through the like extensive training of graduate school. An interesting evolution is that modern practitioners of NLP are now pretty adamant that NLP is not therapy and not supposed to be therapy, but it was pretty much developed to be therapy, if not just a replacement for therapy. Shockingly, the creators, Bandler and Grinder, are not psychotherapists. One of them has a master's in psychology. One of them has a bachelor's in psychology, but neither one of them worked as clinical therapists or psychologists. Uh, Grinder's background is in linguistics. I believe he has a PhD in linguistics. And Bandler got an honorary doctorate in psychology, so he now does refer to himself as um, Dr. Bandler, but he only has a master's in psychology, and most of his work has been in consulting in, like, organizational capacities. NLP was modeled after therapists, so um, they cite, Bandler and Grinder cite uh, both Fritz Perls, Virginia Satir, and several other people as, like, the, the theory behind their work. Fritz Perls was a gestalt therapist um, who, like, kind of pioneered the um, theory underneath gestalt therapy, which is a very, like, here and now focused, you're really very, like, critical of the body language and nonverbals of the, the patient, which shows up a lot in NLP. And then Virginia Satir is a, was a family systems therapist who developed a model of family therapy kind of based on this idea of validation and resilience. I actually really like Satir's model. Um, I've like lectured on it in the past in my professional capacity. I use some of her concepts like in my own work. Virginia Satir herself is not a quack, um, but these quacks used her uh, as like kind of name drops in, in their theory. So um, those were supposedly people that this um, NLP was supposed to be based on. There's a, a, quite a few others they reference, like Milton Erickson. They even reference Noam Chomsky, other people from the linguistics world. Um, but what some of the criticism that I've been reading about NLP is that a lot of these names seem to have just been dropped into the original book and subsequent works to kind of justify the theory, even though their work wasn't actually cited. It was just kind of like a name dropping thing. Technically, most of the model of NLP was based on untested hypotheses that Bandler and Grinder had. They seem to think that the theory was enough and that 
they would put out the book and then it would work and then their hypothesis would become tested. Um, that has not seen the test of time. NLP has done very poorly in the research to the point where it's like there is almost no evidence that it is effective. Um, but before I get into all that, let me tell you what exactly is NLP. So NLP is a way to change the connection between neurological processes, that's the neuro part, um, and the behavioral patterns to meet specific goals. So for example, they use their specific language techniques to make you stick to your weight loss plan. That was the clearest definition that I could cobble together from various different sources that I was reading. The definition of what NLP is is very hard to track down. Um, many practitioners use very different definitions. Some talk about this idea of building internal maps um, and using those internal maps to change behavior. That actually comes up in the Nexium documentaries. They use that language about maps a lot. Um, some people who practice NLP believe that it is a form of hypnosis. Um, it is based on Milton Erickson's theory, who was uh, somebody who used hypnosis and narrative therapy. Um, so this idea of like language and using very specific language to pull certain responses is seems to be baked into uh, NLP. And some say that NLP is a form of psychotherapy. Again, all of that is very confusing. And really what I can, what I can gather from all that I've read is that it is about using language to change behavior, to like re, it's supposed to be like rewiring the brain in a way. It seems to be bunk <laughs> to me. Like, I have not found any studies that demonstrated any positive impacts except for studies that come from Bandler and Grinder, which, like, come on, guys, what, how many times have I had to talk about this on the show with like bias and researcher bias? Like, I would not trust Bandler and Grinder to trust their own to test their own theory, especially given that none of them have a background in that type of research. That was a big part of Nexium was saying that these NLP adapted techniques could be very effective. They have a guy that they trot out who they claim they cured him of Tourette's by using NLP. They would claim that they've cured anxiety and depression with NLP unrelated, but Tony Robbins has propped up uh, people where he said they were suicidal and he changed their lives by using NLP. Like the, the big names who use NLP trot out a lot of these like anecdotal um, evidence, but the, the research is just not supporting it. On the Wikipedia page for NLP, they have a list of things that NLP uh, claims it can treat. The, listen, just listen to this list. This is crazy that they think it can cure all of this. Phobias, depression, tick disorders, somatic disorders, nearsightedness, allergies, the common cold, and learning disorders. I don't even know how NLP could possibly cure the common cold because the common cold is not part of the neurological process. Like your immune system is not controlled by your neural pathways in that way. It is like, it is a independently functioning system in the body that doesn't need the brain to like tell it what to do. So how would NLP even touch on the common cold, nearsightedness or allergies? So 
this is just a nice little a learning moment here is if you see something claiming to to heal this wide variety of things, it is probably not true. If you see someone saying a supplement can cure everything from depression to nearsightedness, it is probably not true. If someone is saying a um I don't know what the right word for them is, but kind of like an alternative healing thing, like those cold baths or um, getting like an infrared sauna experience or something, you know, some of those like kind of spotty treatment things. If someone is claiming that those cure everything from depression to um, allergies, probably not true, right? It's just like, it's not possible for one thing to solve that many problems because like, the way in which depression develops is so much more different than from the way a somatic disorder develops, which is so much more different from the way a learning disorder develops, which is miles away from the way that a cold develops, right? They're just like different systems. And our, even in our brain, the different like parts of the brain and functions of the brain interact with each other in very like different specific ways. And for each individual person, brain chemistry can differ. So to say that something can flat out cure all of these things, it's just, it just like cannot be true. Like there's, there's literally, I, I feel confident in saying this, there's literally not one thing on this earth <laughs> that can cure everything for a hundred percent of people. It's just like, like not even like chemotherapy works all the time on cancer, right? It doesn't work for everybody. Like we, we, we have treatments that are like good, robust evidence-based treatments and we know that they don't work on everybody. So why would this like random thing that these two weirdo dudes wrote be the answer to everybody's problems? And one of the reasons why I don't think that NLP could possibly hear this many things is that based on like the outlines that I was able to read about like what an NLP session looks like, I mean, it is very similar to like psychotherapy techniques. Like they say that first you want to build rapport with the client, then you want to assess what their problem is, then you want to suggest changes in their life. And work through like can they apply those changes like on its face as a just a brief summary that's very similar to what a therapy session is like right as a therapist I want to build a rapport with my clients so that we have a working trusting alliance together I then want to assess the problem and figure out what are you coming in for today what are the areas of the problem that maybe we have control over versus that we don't have control over and then I might suggest changes or help the client to think of their own changes and then summarize it and see you back next week to continue the work. Like, on its face, that is very similar to a therapy technique. The difference is that in NLP, the practitioner is not a trained psychotherapist because uh, Bandler and Grinder were like, oh, you could just read this book and you'll be a therapist. So not someone who has extensive training in anything. Um, And they're supposed to be using very specific language to pull certain responses from the client and be constantly tracking their nonverbals. So like one of the interventions I could find was in NLP, you will, you know, when you, you've assessed the problem and then you're working on suggesting changes, one of the things they'll do is they'll have the client like imagine themselves in the future. So they'll, they'll say like, okay, you're gonna close your eyes and you're gonna think about your problem was that you're trying to get a raise at work and you're nervous to ask your boss. So let's imagine you in the meeting with your boss using all the techniques we talked about to successfully get a raise. So the client will have their eyes closed, is imagining these things. And the entire time, the practitioner of NLP is going to be staring at the client watching their body language. And once you the client opens their eyes and comes out of the visualization, the practitioner is going to keep watching their body 
language. And if their body language didn't change from before the visualization, then they failed the intervention. And they're going to have to do it again and again until their body language changes. Now, that is not to say that nonverbal information can't be valuable. It can be really useful to see, you know, in my work as a therapist, sometimes it is important to see, like, what, how is a client sitting? Are they crossing their arms when they're talking to me? Do they seem to be pulling away from me or pulling in? Some of that stuff can be really interesting, but it is not the whole of the work that I am doing. And I would never base the success of an intervention off of like what their body language looked like. I would just ask, I would just ask the client, like, what was that like after imagining that? Do you think it'll work? You know, like we'd have a conversation about it. So that is the part of NLP to me that feels very manipulative and that the, the language that they're choosing is supposed to pull for certain body responses. There's like little diagrams and stuff you can see on the Wikipedia page about like they use certain, like, if the client's eyes look in, like, the upper left corner, then they need to say this certain word. Or if you want to pull for something, you say, I hear you versus I see what you're saying. Like, little tiny things like that, which to me just feels like, it just feels like manipulative. Like, it just really does. And I am I would be very wary of anyone who's coming into a technique or a self-help seminar and saying, I can use language that will rewire your brain pathways because no one should have that level of control over you. And if someone is cl- is claiming that they do, they do not. Um, and what they're trying to do is set you up to, you know, believe in the power of suggestion that because they've said they have this great power, then the next things that they say they will do. And obviously, in the case of both Tony Robbins and Keith Raniere, NLP can be used to manipulate people. Um, I won't get into Tony Robbins right now, but with Keith Raniere, like the the way that he would use language to manipulate people was very clearly based on this idea of like words have very specific meanings. And if you use the right words, the right order, then they will get the responses that you want. At the end of the, well, not the full end, but like throughout the second season of The Vow, there are quite a few clips of Keith Raniere on the phone talking um, from his prison cell. And you can you can notice in the way that he talks, and I don't think this is all NLP, but this is like kind of the Nexium version of NLP. The way that he talks is very specific and very careful. And he's, he says a lot of things to take the blame off of himself. So he'll say things like, I agree that harm has been done, but I have been painted as a sinner. Or he'll say things like, I agree that there has been great oppression here, but the criminal justice system needs to be allowed to do what it should do. And I'm not quoting him exactly because I really don't care exactly what he says, but the gist of it is like, he's he's being very careful to, to acknowledge that someone has been wronged because the overwhelming amount of evidence, particularly with the the testimony from the two girls who were sexually abused by him. The evidence is like overwhelming that people have obviously been harmed by being in Nexium. And so he's like by conceding that point, he's saying the implicit message is I- I'm a good person. Like I think that harm has been done here. I'm not a cruel, soulless person that you know, I do think that someone is something is wrong here. But there's no placing of blame. There's no placing of responsibility, right? It's just this amorphous harm has been done. He doesn't even take responsibility in in a small way of saying like, 
I led this group where people did bad things, or I knew of people doing things and I'm guilty by, you know, aiding and abetting because I didn't stop it, right? Like, not even that. He's just, like, completely separating himself from this idea that there was harm done, but he's, like, nowhere near where it was, which it's like, you know, I'm not the judge or the jury in that situation, but like, come on, man, there's so much like evidence against you. All these people are coming out and saying, this is the way that you've hurt me. So I think that's the way in which NLP can really easily be manipulated by groups like Nexium in that this like ability to be very precise in language and think about like, what reactions are you trying to get with your your language? And then to sell it to your followers as like, I have this tool that makes me able to change your behavior through language. Like, it's just like a a stepping stone into ultimate power, right? To be able to say, like, I have this special tool that will let me change, like, will make me get you to stop smoking because I can say this or that and cure all your allergies, right? Like, that's, that's wild. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. NLP, I think, also was a good fit with Nexium because NLP was really after they after um, Bandler and Grinder kind of lost the psychotherapy route where clearly it wasn't a therapy. And so they weren't going to be able to sell it to people who wanted to become therapists. They started to market it as like a business tool to become more successful in business, um, you know, and like reach professional developments. I will say this is a red flag for me because therapeutic tools are not meant for people to manipulate uh, other people with. They're not to be used to, to, like, convince or manipulate people into giving you promotions or raises or things like that. Um, And that understanding human behavior in a capitalistic corporate system can, I think, be very dangerous. And if NLP is being marketed in this way, that it's like a business tool to make you to help you get people to do what you want, I think that's starting to, for me, border on territory that I would not be comfortable with as a therapist. Now, I've worked with many clients on feeling more confident at work, being able to communicate effectively to ask for things like a raise, but never with this understanding of like, if you say these right words, you will pull the response that you want and your boss will give you the promotion. Because now we're, you know, we're getting into like mental manipulation territory, right? That's that's not like I'm not comfortable with that as a psychologist. I don't think anyone should be comfortable with that. That part is a red flag for me. And I also see how it fits in with Nexium so well because Nexium was originally packaged as an executive success program. You were going to come into Nexium, work on your stuff so that you could go back to your your office and or your creative pursuit and do what needed to be done to become successful. So all of those things taken together with what I know about NLP, it just unfortunately was kind of like the perfect bedrock for Nexium to be uh, centered on. And, you know, like I talked about in the last episode with this idea of like ethical behavior, 
the cult changed the definition of ethical behavior, right? I mean, well, let's be honest, Keith Raniere changed the definition of ethical behavior within his cult. And I think having this foundation of NLP gives more of a justification for doing these kind of like tricky little things like changing the definitions of words or using words in ways that mean different things than if you were outside of the cult. NLP just gives it that little extra boost to be like, well, this is a therapeutic technique that's supposed to help people, right? It's, it's, it's uh, a scientific program, even though it's a pseudoscientific program. Like, all of this stuff uh, really, like, forms together well. And like I mentioned before, there's just no research that I could find that supported NLP working in any of the ways that's ever been claimed. There could be some evidence to show that just like, you know, having somebody listen to you and help you with your problems is helpful, but the very specific techniques of NLP do not seem to be like inherently effective and definitely are not more effective than any other type of psychotherapy, which does have plenty of evidence supporting its efficacy. So I I think my takeaway is that if you see something talking about NLP, um, it's probably not a good thing. It's probably time to skedaddle on out of there. Um, yeah, so that's that's where I'll leave that with NLP. The next thing that I want to talk about is DOS. DOS was, in my opinion, the great unraveling of Nexium. So I'm going to take you through what happened and then I'm going to talk, you know, a little bit about how I think psychologically people were at a point where they would join something like DOS. So originally DOS was sold to other women in Nexium um, as a women-only, women-run group that was an exercise in self-discipline and meeting their goals. It's referred to as a sorority a few times throughout the documentary. I don't know if that was always what it was called, but it was this idea of like, it was just going to be the women. It was a program just for them. And it was kind of like a a step up from the other stuff that they were doing in Nexium. The reality was that DOS was actually run by Keith. He had been a part of everything from the beginning. It was his idea all along and was a way for Keith to continue to exploit the women in the group and get them into various types of sexual situations. And the documentary mentions this. I don't remember who talks about it, but someone in the documentary talks about it. And I, I, I think this pattern is very clear, but Keith was really escalating in his like sexual deviancy. And it first started with him like opening up to having multiple partners at the same time and then escalated into uh, having those partners do sexual acts that maybe they had never done before. And then it escalated into him doing a lot of this, like, obedience play and having people be, like, you know, doing things that he asked at the, at the whim, even if it wasn't always sexual, but, like, in the context of a sexual relationship with them, like, encouraging this and demanding this obedience. And then started to escalate into, like, holding on to nude photos, having group sex, and then to, like, because tr- that's not sexually deviant, right? Like, that stuff is... It's not sexually deviant. It's not wrong if you engage in any of that. What's wrong in Keith's part is that he had was coercing women into doing this. But then it got to the point where he's like now having sex with, he has sex with an 18-year-old on her 18th birthday and then sex with a, an underage girl. Like he was pushing, he kept pushing the envelopes of what would be 
like acceptable and then pushed past that in terms of sexual acts. And I I think that when people do that, whether it's Keith Raniere or, or anyone else, that there's this element of like thrill seeking that the like level prior of sexual activity that they've been engaging in has stopped like giving the same hits of dopamine that it did before. And the the actual like thrill that the person is starting to get out of the sexual acts is not the sexual acts themselves, but of like, okay, now that I've done this, what comes next? What next way can I push the envelope? I think it's a very similar for what we might call like adrenaline junkies or people who um, really like to engage in like kind of high risk behavior, like, you know, base jumping or the fancy climbing stuff, right? It's like every kind of step of adrenaline inducing exercise, like starts to plateau and then they're looking for what's the next step up. Same with substances, right? First you start with maybe a couple of drinks a night and then no lo- that no longer gets you drunk, so you drink more. We start to build up tolerance to things like this and because things like sexual situations in uh, release dopamine in our brain, we're searching for the next thing that brings us more dopamine. Now, not everyone develops a tolerance like this and has to keep pushing. I think in Keith's situation, there's clearly a lot going on. And if I could diagnose him, I would have a lot to say. <laughs> um, but like, there is something about like Keith's psyche that clearly needs to keep seeking more and more extreme forms of validation. And I would not be surprised if there was an even an element of like, can I get away with doing more and more depraved acts and then still having this group of people love and worship me and consider what I do to be ethical, right? The more he pushes the envelope, the more he's asking his his cult to support what he's doing. And so DOS was one of these steps in his whatever, like twisted sexual journey. Now, I do want to be clear. I don't think that engaging in this type of like obedience play in a sexual relationship or anything in BDSM is twisted or sick at all. What I think is happening in Keith's case is that Again, these women were being inherently coerced into these situations because of the unsized uh, influence he had over them as the leader of Nexium. This was this could never have been a fully consensual relationship because Keith has um, so much control over them. Particularly for the women who got invited into DOS, these are the women who their entire lives were dependent upon Nexium. They had married people in Nexium or were in relationships with people in Nexium. Their businesses were reliant on Nexium, whether because they worked for the organization um, or did some other type of kind of like ancillary job that was supported by the cult. Although their friends were in Nexium, like their kids were being raised in Nexium and they were having support raising their kids by other Nexium people. Like these are not just people that, you know, drift into a weekend seminar. These are people that are trapped in the cult because they have no other connections outside. So Keith is able to take advantage of that and push this like obedient sex play on them because they have nowhere else to go, right? They are already obedient to him. This is just kind of the next step. So this whole concept of DOS was that um, each woman would have a slave master who they had to provide collateral to. And each of the slave masters had seven women under them who then could have seven women under them. It's It always comes back to pyramid schemes with these people. Right? Like it's, it's another pyramid scheme. Now, this collateral really ranged in things. Some of it were things like 
um, sexually explicit photos that the women would send to their slave masters. Some of them uh, wrote letters or made videos um, of themselves saying like truly horrible things about any every one of their family members. Some of the collateral was like com- uh, confessing to crimes and some like especially in the letters and video stuff, some of it was made up, but it was damning enough that if it were released as collateral that the woman feared that her reputation or her life would be damaged in some way. One of the ways in which the collateral was gotten was that the master would approach the woman that they wanted to recruit into DOS and give them kind of the brief description that I gave up top of like, it's a women-run group for that's an exercise in self-discipline and meeting your goals. And then if the woman asked for any more information beyond that, she was told, you have to give us collateral because this is so serious and secret that we cannot and desire such a commitment from you that we cannot tell you anything about it until you give us collateral. So before the women, so talk about informed consent, <laughs> before the women even fully joined the group and knew what was to be expected of them, they had to give up these, you know, explicit photos of themselves or these letters or videos of themselves and turn it over to the slave master. Once they were in, their lives became incredibly restricted. They were told to ask their masters for permission to eat each meal by sending a photo to the master and telling them how many calories were in the meal. They had to ask for permission to go to sleep. Like they had to say goodnight to their master every night. They had to ask for permission if they wanted to go somewhere different or do anything new. Like pretty much everything that they wanted to do, they had to run by their master. And if their master texted them, and, you know, sent them a task, they were expected to do it immediately. And another one of Keith's weird things that showed up in DOS is that, and it wasn't just DOS women, but a lot of the women in Nexium were encouraged to really push to lose weight. Now in DOS, it became part of the kind of master-slave relationship where the slave women were like, you know, not allowed to eat more than a certain amount of calories and they were put on very strict calorie restrictions. I I don't remember off the top of my head, but it definitely was not more than a thousand calories a day, which is like, it, that's insane. That is like, you will not live long if you are eating a thousand calories a day. Like it is not a sustainable diet for most people and any type of like extreme calorie restriction like definitely needs to be supervised by a medical professional because like you just you don't know what's going on with people and like honestly (laughs) from the bottom of my heart like people do enough calorie restricting okay like sometimes just like eat the cupcake (laughs) just just eat the cupcake and live your life like calorie restricting it's just it's such a dangerous behavior um and it, it really could be a slippery slope so I you know I don't know all of the women who were in DOS. I believe it was like 150 women total who participated, but like I would not be surprised if at least a handful of them either already had an eating disorder when they joined or developed disordered eating due to DOS's influence. But this was something that came from Keith because he wanted his women that he was having sex with to look very thin and underdeveloped because then they looked closer to children. And again, I I don't I don't think he classifies as a pedophile, but like he wanted the women that he was going to have sex with to all look the same. And there's um 
a lot of pictures of the group like kind of all together in in the documentaries and i'm sure you can find them online too but you'll see that the women are very like uniform in their body types the the other stuff like their hair and outfits it was you know it's not like a handmaid's tale thing where they all had to wear like the white bonnets but their body types are very similar especially the women that are in the inner circle and keith was doing his darndest to make sure it stayed that way so calorie restriction was one of the things that he like requested that this group do because he wants everyone to look like as thin as possible for his own gratification and it's like you know come on man like how gross can you get that's just like so that it's just so bad this is why i get so angry about keith ranieri because it's like nothing was ever enough for him and he just like really held all of this stuff over these women and the collateral was going to him right the women were not told this but the collateral was going to him he was looking at all their sexually explicit photos. He was reading all the letters that they wrote. He was watching their videos. Like, he was holding on to it. And the fact that then he then takes that and trickles it down into this community where he wants people to essentially starve themselves so that they're, like, thin enough for him to want to have sex with them. It's like, I just, there's no words for it, right? I just, I think I keep coming up against this. Like, there's just no words for it. And it's just, it truly is like exploitation of women all the way up and down this organization. So as DOS went on, the masters began, you know, sending the tasks to the slaves and having them like jump on these tasks. And of course, the task eventually escalated into doing sexual favors for Keith. So it would start with like, you know, take photos and send them to Keith. And, and it started to be like explicitly to Keith, right? So when the women joined the group, they were told it was women only. Keith didn't have any involvement in it. And then the more they were in it, the more collateral that people had over them, because they were not just asked for collateral once, they were asked to give it multiple times. The more collateral the masters held over them, the farther they were in. That's when they began to reveal that Keith did know about DOS. And I don't know if the women ever were explicitly told that he had helped form it um, until the secrets started to come out. But like, he obviously knew about it and they were tasked with like going to have sex with him. So they would be asked to send photos of themselves with him. They would be asked to approach him and offer to do sexual favors for him. And ultimately this culminated in then the women being asked to get a brand, like to be branded by having something burned into their flesh that was later revealed to be a mixture of Keith and Allison Mack's initials. This is how much there is to talk about this cult. I haven't even talked about the fact that Allison Mack was part of the cult. <laughs> if you don't know, Allison Mack is an actress who uh, I think her most famous role was Smallville, but she got really involved in Nexium, worked her way up pretty quickly and became one of Keith's like kind of closest inner circles. And she was one of the like ugh, founding members of DOS. And so when the brand was designed by Keith, it incorporated Allison Mack's initials as well. It's not so hard to see once you see it spelled out, but it was like, it's like Keith's initials like turned sideways and it's supposed to represent like a mountain or something. Like, I don't even know, some, some dumb excuse for it's a mountain of strength for your, you meeting your goals or whatever, but it's, it's a KR and it has an A and an M in it somewhere, which is for Allison. And so again, this issue of consent comes up of that the women were not told that they were going to be branded. They were like invited to the ceremony and then 
made to lay on a table naked and held down by their quote-unquote sisters while they were branded. They were not told what the brand stood for. They were not, or they were not told the truth. They were told something else. And it wasn't until one of the women, Sarah Edmondson, who features very heavily in the documentary, she she told her husband that she had been branded because she was like, this is weird. This is like too much. Like the not eating and sending photos and stuff was weird enough, but this is like way too much. And they realized that it was the KR and she ended up leaving Nexium, going to, I think, the New York Times and telling her story. And that was just one of the factors that really led to the downfall of Nexium. So if we kind of zoom out and look at this idea of DOS as a whole, I think that we can see that it is an example of some of the most extreme ways in which people are psychologically coerced into doing things. Because again, the people who were asked to participate in DOS were not the people who were dropping in for a weekend seminar. They were not even the people on the outermost rings of the inner circle. These were people who were in Nexium, who were in Keith's inner circle that had access to him in some way. And it was pretty clear that these were people who were all in on Nexium, Keith, and the cult. So it's like a double recruitment here, right? Because to get to that point where you're in this inner circle, you've been recruited pretty hard to join a cult and probably had those vulnerability factors I mentioned in the last episode that got you to the point where you're even in Nexium all the way, not just in executive success programs, but where you're in Nexium. And then you're getting recruited again to be in DOS, but because you've spent time in a group where these mind-numbing tactics have been used on you, you have been, you know, encouraged to suppress yourself for the good of the group, you've been encouraged to cut off all of the relationships, like, you are Nexium ride or die when you're told you need to give us collateral before you even find out more about this group. It's become normalized, right? When something becomes normalized, it is so much easier for our brains to just be like, sure, and not stop and think about or pay attention to the alarm bells that are going off. Because this cult operated on these ideals of like ethics and standing by your word and having something like concrete to support yourself or support your word um, and like holding your end of the bargain up, this is a logical extension of that. And so when you're pairing these like more, these aggressive recruitment techniques with this idea of collateral, which then holds a huge psychological burden over the person who gave collateral, because you never know if the master is going to release it. That is the ultimate threat. Some of the women who were interviewed in the vow talk about what they gave for collateral. And even if from the outside you're thinking like, oh, it's not so bad. Like people survive nudes getting leaked or whatever. Like it was picked for those individual women to be their collateral because it would be so devastating to them. Like that's why they weren't all asked to give the same collateral. It was specifically, they were specifically asked to give something that would be for them as individuals a devastating thing to have leaked. So there gives you an element of psychological control that it's not just that it's collateral, but that it is specifically distressing collateral for that person. And then once they're in DOS, these techniques ramp up. You are being asked to eat a minimal amount of calories per day. You are being woken up in the middle of the night if your master has a task for you. You are having to ask for permission when you can go to sleep or not. Like all of those things go back to those mind numbing techniques from episode one 
or from part one, right? Of if we can drain your psychological, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual resources, your your body is running on survival mode. You don't have time to think about like, maybe I'm uncomfortable with this. What does it mean if I'm uncomfortable with this? Like, you don't get to think about that because one, the cult has taught you if you're uncomfortable with it, then it means there's something wrong with you and you need to reflect on it. And two, you just do not have the psychological capital to think about the nuances of that, right? Like, even on my best day, <laughs> when I'm fully hydrated and well-rested, that those are big things to think about. Like, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, what does it mean? Can I really trust my intuition? Can I trust my gut? Like, those are hard things to do even when we are at our best and our psychological capital is full tank. So trying to do that when you're starving, sleep-deprived, you know, people have a huge burden of collateral over your head. Like, yeah, you're you're not going to be able to think through the nuances of that. I will say the mistake that Doss made was by allowing women who had partners in because that is a way in which they still have a connection to the world outside of Doss. They may have been isolated from anyone who's outside of Nexium, but to make an insular group inside of an already insular group, you then would have to cut them off from the larger group of Nexium. And I think with the the example of Sarah Edmondson is that she had her husband who she was not supposed to tell him what was going on, but she still had a connection to him and had something to compare her experiences to. Because there was a men's group that I think started at the same time as Doss, but it was like nowhere near as creepy because guess what? Keith wasn't trying to have sex with them. The Doss thing all happened because Keith was trying to have sex with all the women in Doss. He wasn't as interested in having sex with the men. So their little fraternity wasn't as intense. So Sarah gets to compare her experience with her husband's experience and say like, wait a minute, if the men can have this like obedience fraternity where they're not starving themselves and having to send nudes to Keith, then why are the women doing this, right? Having those those connections allow you to get different perspectives and to think about different options, right? And so honestly, if Keith wanted to be better at running a cult, um, he wouldn't have started DOS. Or if he did, he wouldn't have let people who had partners in. So just a little advice for you aspiring cult leaders out there. It's like you, you literally for a cult to work, people cannot have connection with the outside world. And a benefit of the internet age is that like now people have access to the outside world, even if they are physically isolated because they can get on their phone and get on the internet and get different perspectives. Now, that's not the like savior because obviously people are still in cults in the age of the internet and many people join cults from the internet, but it does complicate it. And I think, you know, Nexium's downfall in part happened because people had these connections still to the outside world. And I won't get into like what happened about the the downfall of Nexium and all the arrests and trials and stuff. You can watch the the documentary for that. But it was a multifaceted, um, you know, effort from different people and different agencies that you know ultimately resulted in Keith Raniere getting arrested and then convicted of so many crimes that he is being uh, forced to serve a 120 year sentence. So overall, even if we took just took DOS, we could look at it as this like kind of microcosm of how psychological control is exerted over people that, you know, even you could look at the DOS women and say, like, why didn't you just leave? Like, why didn't you just like cut your losses? Say, like, OK, maybe people are going to see my nudes. I'm just going to go. 
I got to get out of here. This is too crazy. But at that point, the amount of psychological control that they have been under makes it seem like it's going to be the worst thing in the world if their collateral gets out. And sometimes in order to coerce people, you really only need the psychological control. It is fascinating what the human brain will do when it feels trapped, even if there are no physical walls. It's clear in the example from part one of the young girl that was put in a room for two years, the door wasn't even locked. She could have walked out the entire time. But that psychological capture is paralyzing. And if anything, should be a good reminder that what goes on in our heads is not just quote unquote in our heads, but has real world consequences. Whether it is a mental health condition that can have real world life interfering, you know, consequences or something like psychological coercion can have devastating consequences on our lives. So it's not just that it's all in your head. The things that are going on in your head are vitally important. Whether you're in a cult or you're just trying to live your life, we have to pay attention to these kind of psychologically or psychological concepts because they do have real world implications. So I guess my takeaway from Dexium is don't gaslight yourself. Like trust what your your brain is telling you. Um, you know, definitely don't put yourself in a situation where you could be recruited by a cult. Make sure that if someone is telling you a treatment or a group can cure everything that's ever bothered you, that you say, no way, <laughs> I will. I will struggle along on my own. Thank you very much. Um, and if you know someone who is struggling in a high demand, high control community like this, like my heart goes out for you. I, you know, I hope that you can hold on to this idea that this person did not just like willfully join, that they were recruited and coerced in some way. Um, and that if you can try to make contact with them, with that part of them, that is still wanting to exercise free will um, and still remembers the world around them. Like having connection to the outside world seems to be the best way to get out of a cult. But, you know, I'm not an expert and I'm not into that like kidnapping <laughs> cult deprogramming stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the my takeaway here is just that Nexium was a really screwed up place. Keith Ranieri is a really screwed up guy. And I'm glad to say that he did get some justice and that hopefully the women that he harmed are healing, are getting some peace, and are starting to build their lives back together. So I will leave it there. I will say thank you for listening all the way through, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.